He is risen. We're getting better, aren't we? Happy Easter to you all. I'm delighted that we could all be together as Bethel Embassy and Mount Prospect Bible Church. I think Easter Sunday is probably a more than fitting day for us to unite in our celebration of our one common Lord and Savior, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That is my aim this morning, is to give much attention to Jesus. And I want to begin and end our message with a word from a friend, Jonathan Edwards. He's a dead friend. Jonathan Edwards lived a while ago in New England area. So if you don't know who he is, he's by some estimations, one of the greatest pastor theologians that America has ever seen. So he might be worth listening to if some have said that, but as you'll soon hear, what's more important to listen to will be the Word of God. But let's hear Jonathan Edwards address us this morning with these words. I have had at many times the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures, more than any other book whatsoever. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I felt a harmony between something in my heart and these sweet, powerful words. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by every sentence and such a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along without reading it, often dwelling long on just one sentence to see the wonders contained in it, and yet almost every sentence of the word seemed to be full of wonders. I hope there's some people in the room that are feeling... That describes sometimes when I read the Word. God's Word is full of wonders on almost every single sentence of the Bible. You know, there's over 30,000 verses in the Bible, the way it's been broken down into chapters and verses. That's not the inspired divisions, but we've edited that way so we can find books and verses easier. So 30,000 plus wonders for you to plummet and soak in their, their power, like the reading we had earlier from the Old Testament, Ezekiel. Dry bones, a valley of dry bones. They're dry because they've been dead for a long, long time. And he says, prophesy, speak. And the power of God's word brings life to these dead bones. Or 2 Corinthians 5, that these bodies are just tense, but soon we will have a resurrected body and we will be with the Lord and anyone who perishes in the Lord will be present with Him immediately. Powerful, sweet words, every sentence. But I have three questions for us today and my first question flows right from that idea. If all of the Bible has such power and sweetness to it, every sentence has wonderful truth for us to glean from, what is the most important of the sections of Scripture? Is there such a thing? Can we open up the Bible and say, well, these are sweet and powerful and wonderful, but is it as important as other parts? Is it all equally important? So my first question for us is to ask, what is the most important part of the Bible? Thankfully, the answer is not up for debate because the Bible just flat out tells us this is the most important part. 
just need to be able to learn how to read or listen, and you will find, oh, here's the most important part. So if you would, let's turn our Bibles to see it for ourselves. There's black Bibles, there's red Bibles around you, maybe there's Bibles on your phone or in your lap. The black Bible, this uh, 1 Corinthians 15 can be found on page 961, and then these red Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15 can be found on page 1,109. I'll be reading and using these black ones, their English Standard Version, but whatever Bible you have, I'm sure we will see a lot of similarities since they're all flowing from God's Word. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, what is the most important part of the Bible? Answer. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James. And to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Friends, these are the most important words in the Bible. Did you see that in verse 3? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The words that follow from that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to all of these people. That's the most important thing in the whole Bible. Notice in verses 1 through 3, you get a, a further description of these words. He actually sums them up in a single word. If you wanted to put, well, what's the most important thing in the Bible? It's summed up in a single word. Look at 15 verses 1 through 3. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So he's explaining that he preached, he delivered what he received, and what he received was a gospel. So if you wanted to put it in one word, the most important thing in all the Bible is the gospel. That's it. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Most important thing in all of the Bible is the gospel. Many words are of great importance, but of first importance. And there can only be one thing of first importance. That's kind of what it means to be first importance. It can be second importance, third importance. But of first importance, it's the gospel. So I want to ask you, friends, is the gospel of first importance to you? How about your church, Bethel Church, Mount Prospect Bible Church, Embassy Church? Is the gospel of central importance to you? Have you received it? Have you taken your stand on it? Are you currently standing on it now by faith? You're standing on something. Whether you're here as a Christian, as a member of one of these three churches, or a visitor, you're standing on something today. Some truth, some understanding of the world in your life, something about God, something about whether He exists or doesn't. You're standing on some ground. What ground is yours that you're standing on? C.J. Mahaney has a short little book called The Cross-Centered Life, and in it he tells us 
that there are many different callings and possible areas of service in the kingdom of God, but there is yet one transcendent truth that should define our lives, one simple truth that should motivate all of our work and affect every part of who we are. One simple truth. You ready for it? Christ died for our sins. He says if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it should be the gospel. And I don't mean passionate in just sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, passionate about dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the whole world. Only one thing can be of first importance, and the gospel ought to be it. We should never be content with our grasp of the gospel. It is life permeating, it is world altering, it is universe changing, it has more facets than any diamond, it has depths that we will never exhaust, we will never move on from it, we will only grow more profound in our understanding of it. Therefore, remind yourself of the gospel daily. It is the most important habit you could do. Close quote. The most important habit that you could do is to remind yourself daily of the gospel. My Christian brothers and sisters, are you ever inclined to skip past the gospel? Are you thinking that it's something you receive at one time early in your life or early in your Christian life? It's the start of your Christian faith and then you move on from the gospel? Some have suggested by way of analogy, the gospel is like the diving board. And then we jump into the swimming pool of our Christian life and we swim and we do all kinds of things and services to God or theology. Friends, that's wrong. The gospel is not the diving board. It is the pool we swim in every single day. Is it the pool you're swimming in? Is it the ground you're standing on? Or do you say, oh, yeah, 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 Pastor Phil, I got it. I've, I've heard that one before. Christ died for our sins. Let's, let's move on. Something more exciting or interesting or more controversial. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the baptism of the dead. What's that about? Later on, it's going to talk about the first fruits of our resurrected bodies. Tell me what my resurrected body's going to look like. Am I going to be this size or that size? Will I be 50 or 20? Are you ever inclined to move past the gospel to say, oh yeah, yeah I, I got that. I think one of the worst things I hear as a pastor is when someone says, well, I didn't really learn anything new in that sermon, so yeah, I didn't like it. You didn't learn anything new? So, so that's what sermons and preaching and the gathering of worship services is about the new, latest, and greatest ideas? You want something new? I promise you this, friends. Today, the best thing you will hear all day is something very old. Something that if you've been a Christian, you've heard it a lot. And you'll hear it a lot even in this message. The best news in every sermon, in fact, is old news. Not new news. Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures and the plan of God. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to hundreds. Is there any better news that you could hear today? Christ died for our sins. Kids, I don't know if you're paying attention, but this would be a good time to listen up for a second. 
Christ died for our sins. What does that mean? You know, even adults struggle with that concept. How can Jesus pay for our sins? Now, it's one thing if you owe money or something that you need payment for, and you could have someone pay it for you, but sins? How can Jesus pay for our sins? I want to illustrate it this way. So I want kids, you to imagine that you're in the kitchen table, and on the kitchen table is a plate of cookies. Plate of cookies and a glass of milk, and there's a tablecloth underneath it, and mom has said, no cookies and no milk till after dinner. She turns her back, she walks away, and then she turns and sees, you're reaching up the tablecloth for some cookies. As you try and go grab those cookies, you start to see that in your disobedience, it has gotten you into some big trouble, not just with mom, but with your own actions, that these cookies and milk are now falling down onto your head because you couldn't reach them, and now they're sliding off. Mom sees this. Now, if we pause the story at this moment, there's three different endings that we could tell. One is that in mom's anger of your disobedience for grabbing these cookies when you know you weren't supposed to, she could just let them fall on your head, milk, cookies, and all, and you would be covered in a mess and then grounded. Now, friends, kids, you would certainly deserve this punishment. You didn't obey, and therefore there is consequences for our bad actions. And mom, in every right, should be able to just let those cookies fall, make you clean up the mess, and go to your room. But see, this is what some people think happens. A second scenario could happen. Mom turns the corner, and she sees that you're in a great peril of danger as the cookies and the milk are about to fall on your head and you're going to receive the judgment of your bad actions. She then quickly calls your brother or your sister and says, Oh, Johnny, come help! Your brother, he's, he's in trouble. And then instead, at the last moment of the cookies and the milk falling on your head, the brother pushes you out of the way and the cookies and the milk fall on his head. See, now, a lot of times people think of the gospel in this way. They think of it as, as if there's a third party, a new character needs to be introduced into the story. And so when you hear these words, Christ died for our sins, you think, okay, so there's God and then there's myself and I've sinned and I deserve death and punishment for my sins. But you see, it's not a third party. The, the real ending of this story should go like this. Mom turns her back. She sees that the cookies are falling down on you. And instead of having the cookies and the milk fall on you, they fall on her. She pushes you out of the way and she receives the mess and the punishment and the consequences of your actions. You see, it's because this verse begins with Christ. If we don't get Christ right, we don't understand that He is the Son of God, that it's God who receives the punishment for our sins, then you're missing the whole gospel, friends. There's not a third party here. It is God Himself in the flesh that is dying on our behalf, receiving the punishment that we deserve. So whether you're an adult or you're a child, friends, this is the good news of first importance. Christ died for our sins. He was really dead. That's why it says he was buried in a tomb. 
three days later, he rose again victorious over death, and he appeared to hundreds of people. What's the most important part of the Bible? It's these words right here. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be this chapter, but anytime you see the words of the gospel, Christ dying, substituting, justifying us in our place. Second question. Will you consider the facts of the gospel this morning? Sometimes I feel like when we think about truth, Many of us today don't really want to know the truth. You know, we kind of enjoy people just lying to us all the time. There was a time when I thought I was a really good singer. And then people told me the truth, and now I don't sing in front of church, and now you are all blessed for it. But you ever watch those silly TV shows, whether it's American Idol or America's Got Talent, and you've got some person that's never had someone tell them the truth? They get up in front of everyone and they make a fool of themselves because they think, they're convinced you can just tell by looking at them. I'm good. I can sing. But man, are they bad. And they're really on TV at that moment because everyone's just laughing at them. Isn't it nice every once in a while to have somebody tell you the truth? Tell you what's really true, not just about you, but about life. Experience the goodness of it. I think a lot of us consider God like I consider Krispy Kreme donuts. Krispy Kreme donuts are delicious, amazing. There's not as many of them around here, but I wish there were. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Krispy Kreme donuts have what is called hot fresh now. Oh, friends, you have not had a donut until you've had hot fresh now Krispy Kremes. Warm soft, melt in your mouth. Mwah. Now, here's the deal with Krispy Kreme donuts. I don't want to know what they're made of. I don't want to know what the ingredients are in them, and I don't want you to tell me how many calories there are. That truth is not helpful when I would like to consume an entire dozen box of Krispy Kreme donuts. You see, I would like to keep telling myself that I will be perfectly fine if I eat them as much as I like. Could it be that some of you think about God this way? That it's not really a matter of objective truth, it's just a preference. Well, that works for you. Oh, you like those? That's good. I like, I like Dunkin' Donuts. See, don't tell me the facts. I don't really want to know the truth. I don't want to know the truth about God. I don't want to know whether or not there is, in fact, going to be punishment, a God of justice, a God who does, in fact, have wrath. Do we really want to know these things? Friends, do you this morning want to know the truth, even if it's different than what you currently think about God? Or do you want to be like me and just eat away at Krispy Kreme Donuts, knowing that it's really not serving me that well. And that's why, in fact, I don't eat Krispy Kreme Donuts by the dozen every day, because I know the truth. It's not good for me. So which of these statements that I read about the gospel are the hardest for you to believe? That Jesus was a man who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and really lived on the earth? 
that Jesus died on a cross as a payment for sins according to the plan of God? Or is it hard for you to believe that he truly did come back to life in bodily form and hundreds upon hundreds of people saw him? Now, almost nobody denies the fact that Jesus lived on the earth. You just, like, you're weird if you don't think Jesus lived. Like, you're not a good scholar, you're, you're, you're just not, you're not in tune, friends. Let, let me help inform you. There's almost no historical scholar that has of any credence for the last 2,000 years that thinks Jesus didn't exist. He existed. Similarly, even the greatest skeptics still say that Jesus died on a cross. For example, Bart Ehrman, you ever heard of this man? He used to go to Wheaton College and Seminary. Bart Ehrman is now working at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, University of North Carolina, and he is one of the greatest skeptics, textual critics, and opponents to telling others that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. Don't put your faith in him. He once did, and now he's rejected that altogether. But even him, after getting a PhD at Princeton and writing and studying and spending his whole life telling people, don't believe in Jesus, he still says this. One of the most certain facts in all of history is that Jesus Christ was crucified on the orders of Pontius Pilate. So we know he existed. We know that it's one of the most certain facts in all of history that he died on a cross. So finally, it's whether or not he rose again from the dead. And even here, we pretty much don't have any good scholarship out there that would say that the appearances didn't happen. So the question is whether or not these appearances happened because the people were hallucinating, which seems strange to me for that being one of the most prevailing theories of explaining the resurrection, that groups of 500 people hallucinate all at the same time. I didn't know LSD was invented back then, right? Like, who hallucinates in a group all at one time? And then at different times, groups of 12 and individuals all telling the same story. In fact, when you look at this scripture, you can tell that Paul is telling you, look, if you don't believe me, many of these people are still alive. Some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism that they have died and passed on. But most of them are alive. We know, and this is again out of all of the scholarly works, almost everybody believes that Paul wrote this, and it's just 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. So you've got a short distance between the death and resurrection of Jesus when this is written, and he says, look, these guys are alive. You don't believe me? Go talk to them. Eyewitnesses, friends. Are you willing to consider the facts this morning that there are hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or do you just want to keep pretending or acting like it's a spiritual resurrection. There wasn't a bodily resurrection. You see, this truth is hard for even Christians to understand. For in fact, the whole reason why this chapter is in the Bible is because these believers in Corinth struggled with this idea. Look at verses 12, 13, and 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And in this moment, he's saying that there will be no future resurrection. So they at once believed in the gospel that was presented here. But these brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth, as you can see in verse 12, struggle with the idea that there will be a future resurrection from the dead. 
And he says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Jesus didn't rise again from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Look down at verse 35, you'll see again, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So I don't want to assume this morning that all of us, just because we're in a Christian church on Easter Sunday morning, even if we're members of current churches that we're a part of, that we may not be struggling or doubting or wondering, is there really a resurrection from the dead? I know that as soon as we leave these doors, I know that you will be smelling and breathing the air of modernism, which means you will be smelling and breathing the air that scientifically we've proven resurrections don't happen, so therefore... You're going to be at odds with the world if you say, yes, I do believe in a resurrection from the dead. But friends, I want to point out that this isn't one of those things that is hard for us to believe because we're scientific and we're modern, and that back in the Bible days, these Corinthians, you know, they were just primitive first century people. Now, this was easy for them to believe. That's why the Christian church got started, because they were more gullible and said, oh, of course there was a man that raised from the dead. Friends, you don't know the first century very well if that's your line of thinking. First century people had just as much of an obstacle for them to believe in the resurrection from the dead than you and I do. For in the first century, there would have been only two kinds of people in terms of their religious understanding of the resurrection from the dead. There would have been the Jews, which did not believe in a single man raising up from the dead, but they believed at the end times resurrection when all things would be made new, God raised people from the dead, and that all death would be done away with, all disease would be done away with. And so the Jews had a belief in the resurrection but not in a single man in the middle of history just being raised from the dead. This was absurd. This was impossible if you're a Jewish person. Yet what would we find in the early church, the early Christians, is that hundreds upon thousands of Jews are believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Huge obstacle to their worldview, but yet they still believe that it happened. Why? Why? Because it's true. Because there's eyewitnesses, because they saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. What about the Greeks and the Romans? Many of them would have been making up membership in this church in Corinth. They thought the body was bad, that it was weak, that the spirit was good. They saw that death was a good thing because it would finally liberate the soul from the terrible shackles of our body and the decay of these human flesh. So imagine preaching the gospel to the Greeks and the Romans and telling them, Bodily resurrection is the hope for your life. Friends, this would have been just as absurd and ridiculous. Whether you were Greek or you were Roman, whether you were Jewish, they had the obstacles of their worldview and the whole world around them telling them, people don't rise from the dead in the middle of history. Maybe if you're Jewish and there's a whole big renewal of the whole world, but that's not what was being claimed. What was being claimed is that In the middle of history, a man named Jesus, who was the Messiah, he died on a cross, and after three days, he rose again, and he stayed alive. This this is strange. I, I remember listening to one rabbi. 
explain it this way. He says, why don't I believe in the resurrection or why don't I believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He said, look around you. Death continues. There's still disease. There's still injustice. He's looking around at this broken, sin-cursed world and he's saying, friends, the reason why Jesus is the Messiah is because death's still going on. If there was the Messiah in your Jewish worldview, all of death would be done away with. Injustice would be taken care of. Everything would be made right. So how is it that Jesus can be the Messiah? It was every bit of impossible and unlikely for them to believe in it. We may be more scientific or more modern. We may think that it would have been more normal for them, but friends, that is just not dealing with the facts. The reason they believed it wasn't because they were more primitive Their worldview was just as much an obstacle as your modern scientific worldview. Why do you think your worldview is somehow superior or better than theirs? It is the eyewitnesses and the hundreds of people who saw Jesus, 500 at the same time, many of them who are still alive, that is the bedrock and the foundation for the gospel. It challenged their views, and they believed them because they were true, and then they died for them. Look at the way Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 19. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if that, in fact, the true if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those who are also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I think that's one of the strangest statements in the New Testament when you think about the way sometimes we think what Christianity is what it's like to be a Christian. For example, I remember hearing a discussion and a debate where a man was asked as a a Christian leader, and he said, look, what if you come to the end of your life and you find out that Jesus was in fact dead and never raised again? What if you find out that your whole faith was in vain, your whole life was meaningless? He says, well, it would have been a worthwhile life because of the prayer and devotion and the service and the love that we give for other people, being a Christian is a wonderful life. Why doesn't Paul say that here? Why doesn't Paul say, hey, being a Christian is so wonderful that even if Jesus didn't die and rise again from the dead, it's okay because it'll be a worthwhile life for you to live. The reason why Paul didn't say that is look at verses 30 and 31 and 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ did not rise from the grave, friends, then there is no reason for you to be in church. There is no reason to waste your time any longer. You can leave now if you want. 
There's no reason to pray. There's no reason to love one another. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Who cares? And in fact, why would you give your money, your time, your energy, why would you put your life on the line and live in such a way where the resurrection is true? See, it makes a difference for these people. One of the reasons why we can know that these people weren't making these things up is because they lived this way. They saw it was true, and they said, I will die every day for Jesus because he died for me, and because death is dead. If you know that death is dead, then you can conquer any obstacle that comes your way, any trial, any struggle. So, friend, I ask you, as a Christian, Are you living today as if the resurrection were true? And does your life only make sense in light of the resurrection of the dead? That the only way your friends, your family, the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, it only makes sense because you know all your Easter eggs are in the one Easter basket Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's the mark of a normal Christian. Not radical Christians. Not super crazy Christians. That's normal. Normal Christian people realize that because of the resurrection of the dead, this is a game changer, and my whole life is different. It's in fact what Paul said at the end of that first paragraph. Look at verse 9. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me, whether then... It was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul was changed, transformed. By what? By grace. Third and final question. Are you here this morning, and are you confident that you can face anything? If the gospel is the most important thing in the Bible, for which we should remind ourselves and remind one another and hold fastly to it, not let our grip go from it, swim in it every day, and we know that it's true, We know it's true, and we can put our faith fully and confidently in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Is it having this kind of effect in your life, a transforming power? Can you face death, worry, disease, sickness, troubles in relationships, this is not just mere optimism, oh, I'm an optimistic person. That's what Christians are. They're just really optimistic. I think Christians are actually realists. We can be real about the pain and suffering in this world. We can be real about death. We don't have to go to every funeral and just pretend, well, they're in a better place. Some people are. Some people aren't. We can be real and realistic and honest. And we can have hope in the midst of all of it. That hope is found in the last section of this chapter. Look at verses 50 and following of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching the Bible is that death is the right and due punishment for the wages of our sin. Teaching the Bible is that death is an enemy. You see that in the scriptures? We don't need to avoid death. We don't need to befriend death. We need to trust that death is done. It is swallowed up. It's not avoided. It's not acting like death is something that we should call natural. It's just a natural part of life. Some want to say that death is a peaceful sleep. No. Death is awful. Funerals are terrible. Losing loved ones hurts. This is not sheer optimism for optimism's sake. We can be realistic and honest with one another. We can have hope in the midst of that awful pain because death is dead. Because of the resurrection, death is a defeated enemy. And so Paul, it's like he's laughing at it, teasing. Oh, death, where's your victory? No, 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 no. It's like he's teasing. You have no sting, stingless poison. It's like the bite of a snake, but with no poison in it. It hurts, but it doesn't kill you for good. I love the words of George Herbert. Death used to be an executioner, but because of the gospel and resurrection of Jesus, it has made death a gardener. Death plants me like a seed into the ground and makes me something beautiful like a flower. That's the whole image here in 1 Corinthians 15, that he uses these bodies here. They will be planted down into the ground of the grave, and they are like a seed, and they will be raised again. Imagine every time you look out at all of the different cemeteries, every time you see grave after grave after grave, and normally the thoughts are, what a sad place to be. Instead, look with the eyes of hope and see that it is just God's beautiful garden. Cemeteries aren't reminders of the final word of death. Cemeteries are a reminder of a seed in the ground and God's resurrection power. Friends, that's why we're here this morning. That's what Easter's about. That's the most important thing in the Bible. Do you believe that it's true? Are you standing on it? Are you holding fast to these words? And do you have hope from it? Let's conclude with Jonathan Edwards. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most joyful event that has ever come to pass. Because Christ has rested from the great and difficult work of purchasing redemption and received God's testimony that it is finished. The death of Christ was the greatest and most wonderful event that came to pass. But it was a great deal of sorrow when it did. But the resurrection of Christ turned that sorrow into joy. Friends, what a wonderful thing we have to believe, to share, to stand in, and swim in every day. Tomorrow when you wake up, remind yourself, He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray together.